Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Chris Hoffman. So she looks at me and she points at me and she says, get in there, take your clothes off, and I'll be there in a second. <laughs> that and more, but before that, I just want to say something I've said before. I'll go ahead and say it again, guys. You know, going to the post office is so old school. You don't want to be old school. You want to be... uh lit fam <laughs> naturally you want to be as lit fam as possible you don't want to be old school you want to be uh on fleek of course you want to be on fleek <laughs> you want to be hunty or may i believe you do thank you for this website here refinery 29 letting me know what people are saying nowadays and anyone out there is welcome to create a listicle about how politically incorrect it was for me to be using some of those words because i'm sure that according to identity politics only some people are probably allowed to use some of those words now but the point is you don't want to be old school it's such a hassle taking trips to the post office. That's why over 600,000 small businesses are already using Stamps.com to get postage right from their desk whenever they need it 24 hours a day. Stamps.com turns your computer and printer into a virtual post office. You can buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter or package. Stamps.com is the better way to do your mailing and shipping. It's so easy to use and convenient, lets you focus your time where you want on growing your business instead of time-consuming trips to the post office. $2.6 billion in postage was printed just last year alone using stamps.com. We use stamps.com at Risk in the Story Studio and we love it. And right now you can sign up for stamps.com and use our promo code risk for this special offer it's a four-week trial plus a hundred and ten dollar bonus offer including postage and a digital scale so don't wait go to stamps.com before you do anything else click on the microphone at the top of the home page and type in risk that's stamps.com enter risk now here's the show Kids, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. This is Boozu Baju behind me now, and we're calling this week's episode Dissatisfaction. We did an episode once called Satisfaction. We thought, what the fuck? Let's go with the diss this time. <laughs> um, these are three stories where the storyteller in the realm of sex and romance either had dissatisfaction coming at them or shot themselves in the foot maybe a little bit by bringing dissatisfaction unnecessarily to the table think on that my friends 
How often do you do that? Unnecessary worry, unnessary second guessing, unnecessary <sighs> expectations. So easy to do. Now we're going to start with someone who is very, very near and dear to all of our hearts. Cindy Freeman is one of the most important members of the Risk team. Cindy is, well, she's told stories on the podcast over the years, but this past year we added her as the person who helps us help our tour show folks prep their stories, you know, helps us with the reading of the pitches and the guidance and hand-holding of the people who are getting ready to get up on stage and share those stories, workshops them with them. And she brings so much goddamn heart and soul to the work. I am in awe. And brain power. I mean, the attention to detail. Holy shit. JC Cassis, who produces Risk, has said, Oh my God, if we could only have a few more Cindy's taking over various other roles on our staff, we would be set. An army! of Cindy's. I dream of an army of Cindy's teaching the world to tell their tales. And Cindy does so very much. She is the host of the Hotsy Totsy Burlesque show at the legendary Slipper Room. I have seen Hotsy Totsy Burlesque and it is just a jam-packed evening of sexiness and silliness. And you can find out more about Cindy at her website Heroics in Hot Pants. Here she is now at the Risk Live show that we did in Boston several months back with a story we call Sore Winner. I am wearing my blues with my badge, my hat, and I love mostly my gun. Uh, the gun on my hip, it makes the belt really heavy, so it, like, it's snug like a hug, and it's always there. Now, I'm in a diner, um, and it looks like every police officer in Boston is in this diner, and I'm trying to make myself to the front door. I can hear a conversation to my right. It is a good-looking guy and uh, the police chief, and the police chief is saying, Spencer, you're my only hope. And the director yells, cut! And Spencer, a.k.a. Robert York, a.k.a. Spencer for Hire, turns in his chair, grabs the hat off my head, and yells, keep away! And a huge game of keep away is happening with everybody on the set again. I am an extra on Spencer for Hire, and it is the best job I've ever had in my life. I am uh, 22 years old, it's 1987, and this, I don't know if I should laugh or if I should just be grabbing for it, but I'm just smiling and giggling because, you know, it's the 1980s and sexual harassment is something you can still enjoy. Um, <laughs> I love this job and it's not just that it's I'm actually working I know I'm an extra I know you're jealous but it's not that I'm just working on like a Hollywood movie but it's mostly the fact that nobody on this set is my crazy ex-boyfriend nobody and nobody on the set 
knows about my crazy ex-boyfriend. So while I'm on the set, that drama does not exist. And so I never want to leave this set ever. And because I love being there so much, they also kind of love me. And it's this sort of like love fest. Like I'm actually like the mascot almost of the set. I mean, Robert Urich loves me. When I walk on, the Teamsters are like, Cindy! The, the casting agent has actually said they have asked for you every day. I don't, I've never heard anything. What are you doing? And what I'm doing is simply, I'm just really happy to be there. And the irony in all of this is the fact that Spencer for Hire is my crazy ex's favorite show. And so it is not lost to me that the place where I'm finding solace from him is his favorite show. If we were walking through Boston when we were in college, we would walk through Boston, we would see the sets where they would be filming, and like the day would be over. Like anything planned would be gone, because all he wanted to do was watch them film and look for his hero, Robert Urich, you know? And... Um, we also, we were in a comedy troupe together. It's where we met. And he would always write, like, Spencer for Hire sketches where he would pay Spencer. And Sam was the funniest guy I'd ever met. And that says a lot because it was the 1980s and I was a uh, fledgling open mic stand-up comic at the time. And that was Boston when stand-up was king. So, like, at the clubs, I'm, like, hanging out with the likes of Steve Wright and Dennis Leary and Janine Garofalo and Louis C.K. and David Cross. And, like, anyone who's famous now was there. But despite it, all Sam was the funniest person I knew and he was cute and he had this floppy hair and he was skinny and I wouldn't love to say he was a classic beauty but he was not I'd love to say he wasn't deformed but he was he was blind in one eye and this is because he had surgery as a child he'd had a tumor removed and he had gone blind and so one eye was like pale green and the other was brown but to me that just made him more heroic like he was like David Bowie or something and he use this eye to comic effect like if there was something going on on stage all he needed to do was stare out at the crowd like mad eye moody and everybody would laugh and he was sweet and he was like thoughtful and because he had faced death and kind of won over it he was like the only kid I knew who talked about life being a blessing and I was just so enamored and one friend was like who do you think is cute and I was like Sam and the next day Sam was in my face at the cafeteria saying I hear rumor you have a crush on me and I looked at him with my heart beating and he wasn't frowning. Maybe it was a good thing. And I went, yeah. And like Grover from Sesame Street, he flipped his hands going, whoa. <laughs> and then he put them down and said, just had to get that out of my system. We should do something about that. And just like that, he was mine. And he was really kind. And we were both virgins. We were both like late bloomers. And God, I just remember this one night, our final night in the dorms right before I graduated. My roommates are gone and it's me and him. And we're just fooling around and almost getting there and not getting there and giggling. And it's like we understood, like we were navigating it slowly. We never slept. And the sun came up. We had a view of the Charles River. And the two of us watched the crew boats go by, just like banging into to each other and funny voices saying, stroke, stroke, stroke. I was the luckiest girl ever. 
So the summer came and we were gonna move in together and I'm in this artist collective. It was like nine people in a three bedroom apartment, all from the theater department. We were kids, we were broke, it was great. We knew everybody. Uh, we moved in, uh, he was uh, coming back to school the next year but was gonna stay in Boston just for me for the summer and I was gonna move on and become a stand-up comic. Well, about a week into it, we're sitting on the couch and he's kind of sad and I don't know why and I say, what's up? And he's like, I don't have a good feeling about this summer. I'm like, what does that mean? And he says, I just don't have a good feeling about this summer. And just like that, he was crazy. Just like that, like overnight. It was Jekyll and Hyde. And the first couple of days, I didn't really notice it. He just was really kind of somber and like didn't really have much to say. But then we got in our first fight because I got my first stand-up comedy paid gig and I was so excited. And he was like, well, what about me? And I thought it was a joke. And I'm like, well, what about you? And he's like, well, didn't they want to book me? And I'm like, well, they barely know you. I've been doing this for years. You've only done it three times because I made you. They don't know you. And he was saying, well, you should tell them about me. And I was like, all right, the point is what you're doing right now is really inappropriate. The correct response is you're happy for me. And he was like, well, I'm not saying I'm not happy for you, but if you cared about me, you would get me that gig. And I didn't know what to do about this except for call my girlfriends and go, what? And they were all just like, because we were all 22 and none of us knew what to do, right? So I go and I do the gig and I'm staying out late with my comic friends because it went great and I call just to say I'm late and I get a roommate on the phone and they're like, you've got to come home, he's gone crazy and I don't know what this means and I get there, there's a broken chair in the kitchen, he's lying on the futon on the floor and I'm like in our bedroom and I'm like, Sam, what's up? And he won't look at me and he rolls over and stares at the wall and the roommates, the female roommate who the lease is on pulls me aside outside on the porch and she's like, we asked him to do dishes. He's like, I don't do dishes, that's women's work. And he said this to like an out and proud lesbian. <laughs> and she said, I took offense to that. I told him if he didn't do dishes, he could leave. And he said, this is how I do dishes. And he went over to the kitchen and just started smashing the dishes. And when there were no more dishes, he grabbed the chair and just broke it. And he, she said, we were in unison. We're all like, you're out. And she's like, he's out. I have known him for three years. I don't know what this is. This is crazy. This is like certifiable. And she was like freaking out. I'm trying to calm her down. And she's like, I've never said this to anyone, but you have got to dump him. I had only been living with him for like 10 days at this point, and I just didn't know quite what to do. We found him another apartment, and then two days later, the booking agent is like, I got a call from your boyfriend. Yeah, he, he told me that uh, he, I'm an idiot for not booking him, and that I'm a fuck-up and an asshole, and that he has more talent in his little finger than you have in your whole body. Who is this guy? And you need to dump him, and I did. I went home, and I dumped him. And he just cried, and he just sobbed, and he just, he said the magic words, I don't know why I'm doing this, I don't know what's wrong with me, please don't leave me, please help. So I didn't leave him, and then three weeks later, he broke up with me, saying that I was the reason for it all, and then he was committed to a mental institution where he begged me back, and I said no, and then he starts leaving messages on the machine, saying it's all my fault. Then my friends start calling me once he's back in college and out of the mental institution, telling me everything he's saying behind my back about how I'm frigid, and how, how I am probably a lesbian, and I'm trying to be empathetic and saying it's the mental illness speaking, and please don't tell me any more of this, but this is all they want to talk about. So I'm like, I stopped talking to them. 
and the piano bar that I hang out at, he starts hanging out there and glaring at me, so I stop hanging out there. And then finally comes that night, I'm at the comedy club, I am 30 feet from the stage, and he has started putting his name in the hat, he gets picked, and the jokes are, my girlfriend, while kissing her, was warm and fuzzy because of the mustache. And she sucked. Well, she didn't suck. Well, actually, she didn't suck, and she didn't swallow, and that's the problem. And he's saying this all in front of all of these comedian friends that I don't really have anymore, because everything he's done, they've kind of distanced themselves. And the booking agent's there, and I feel eyes on my side, and I turn in. It's an 18-year-old Louis C.K., and he's looking at me with pity, and he's just like, I'm so sorry. Anyhow, the next day I'm in my therapist's office and I am just in tears. I am just sobbing and I am just crying and I am inconsolable. And she's like, it is just too toxic. You know, he knows where to find you and he's trying to get to you. Just like, don't go anywhere where he knows to find you. There has got to be something. Boston's a big town. Audition for something else. Hence, I go to the casting agency. I get into Spencer. And here I am. And I love these people so much because they don't know anything that I have been through. And the only thing that makes this sweeter is the fact that he has ruined everything for me and I no longer have sympathy for him but I own his goddamn show it is my show his hero Robert Urich loves me and the only thing that that would make this sweeter that could fix this even a little bit is for him to know it So I start having these fantasies of how is he going to find out? I'm imagining on the sofa, you know, with the popcorn and the Thorazine, and he's watching the TV, and he's telling everyone, don't bother me, Spencer's on. And he's doing that, and there's Robert Urich, and I'm behind him, like, typing or something, and he'll see it, and he'll go, yeah! So I'm having these sort of like, like really just passive revenge fantasies when one day the car that just drives us to the next set drops us off in front of the theater arts building of Emerson College. And it's a Wednesday, and I know there's like, he has a class in there, and the set, it's a car with bullet holes, it's right across the street from the theater arts building, and the craft services table is like right up against the theater arts building, right? And I'm just like, it is my chance. And I start positioning myself by the craft services table, so like as he comes out, if he's in there, he will see me. And other kids come out, I know, and I'm like, hi, and I don't talk to anyone, I'm working, right? And I'm just like waiting for him, and the director, he sees me, and he goes, hey, Cindy, have a seat. And I'm like, what? He goes, oh, just have a seat. I'm like, I can't take your chair. And he says, have a seat. And he takes me, guiding me like a princess by the hand to the actual director's chair. So I am sitting in the proverbial director's chair with a Diet Coke in my hand when I see him, Sam, come out the door and down. And, oh, it's a set of Spencer. And he is so excited. And you can see it. I'm just waiting. And he's looking for Robert Urich. And he's not seeing him. And then he sees me. And I see him. And I toast him. And I take a sip. And I tip my policewoman's hat. Because no matter what he's done, I am happy, and he has lost, and I have won. And then I see his eyes go down, and the head slump forward, and he disappears into the crowd, and then I see him walking up towards his apartment on Beacon Hill, and the shoulders are just racking with sobs. I have won, and I have broken the mentally ill boy. And it hasn't fixed 
anything because there is no fixing it. There's no making this better except for if he got healthy. And he has all of these excuses for why he is the way he is. There's, there's medical reasons, there's medication they're putting him on. And me, I have no excuse for this little action that I have done except for I'm just being a dick. Thank you. This is Risk. This is Caleb Holly behind me now. Of course, we just heard from Cindy Freeman. And if you love stories like you hear on Risk, you probably love books too, but you probably find you never have time to sit down and read them. Well, audible.com has the perfect solution. Get audiobooks and listen to the books you've been meaning to read while on the go, at the gym, during your commute. Audible.com has audiobooks from the leading audiobook publishers, broadcasters, entertainers, magazine and newspaper publishers, and business information providers. Their app is free and works on iPhones, iPad, Android, and Windows Phone. You can also download and listen on your Kindle Fire and over 500 MP3 players. And unlike a streaming or rental service, with Audible.com, you own your books. So you can access your books anytime, anywhere, right from your smartphone. Audible.com has the great listen guarantee. If you decide you don't like the book you chose, no worries. You can exchange any book you aren't happy with for another title anytime. No questions asked. I listened to a ton of books on Audible. I, just this past summer alone, I've listened to The Inside Out Revolution, Waking Up, The Untethered Soul. I, I have a thing for these kind of meditation-y, self-helpy books. But they've got classics, they've got fiction, they've got young adult stuff, comedy, lectures, memoirs. You can't imagine. It's a huge selection. And just for Risk listeners, Audible.com is offering a free 30-day trial membership. Go to audible.com slash risk today to start your free trial. Again, show your support for Risk and get a free 30-day trial at audible.com slash risk. And now, here is the queen of all imbeciles. Hey, everybody. This is JC Cassis. I produce the Risk podcast hosted by Mr. Kevin Allison, who's making a Philly faith at me right now as we speak. Anyhow, I wanted to tell you guys about a company called Modcloth, which only I could tell you about because it's clothing for women. 
ModCloth is your go-to spot for fashion that's as unique as you are. And they feature a broad range of styles from the understated to the adventurous, the classic to the contemporary, the retro to the right now. And at ModCloth, you'll find anything but ordinary dresses, tops, bottoms, shoes, bridal styles, outerwear, and home decor. Their statement prints, bold colors, distinctive designs, and vintage-inspired looks add uncommon and unexpected flavor to every moment in your day. Every moment in your day! Use their free mod stylist service for dedicated one-on-one sizing and fit tips and personalized styling support. Now, as a woman with giant boobs, a semi-regular sized waist, and giant square hips, I definitely need that. And I'm sure all of you have weird bodies as well, so the mod stylist would be great for you. I love that everything there has a jokey title. There's the Better Latte Than Never sweater, the It's No Pig Deal tee with a little pig on it. There's the Hit or Myth men's socks that have mythical creatures on them. Another thing I love about ModCloth is that it's basically as stylish as Urban Outfitters or Anthropology, but all the prices are really affordable because there's nothing worse than looking at a site full of cute clothes and then finding out that they all cost $350. Right now, you can shop their latest collection and find your new fall favorites. Go to M-O-D-C-L-O-T-H dot com. That's ModCloth dot com. And enter promo code RISK, R-I-S-K, at checkout to get $20 off an order of $100 or more. Make Every day extraordinary with mod cloth. All right, let's get back to the stories now. Now, in a little bit, we're going to hear a story from the Mystery Box show in Portland, Oregon. The Mystery Box features stories about sex. It's a fantastic show. We've shared some of their stories on the podcast before. It's produced by Eric Schur and Reba Sparrow, and they do just such an extraordinary job. The story we're going to hear from the Mystery Box later is by Chris Hoffman. But before that, we're going to hear a story that was shared at our Montreal show earlier this summer. Nisha Coleman is just the sweetest, smartest gal. She's very involved in the storytelling world there in Montreal, which is just kind of starting up now. So if you're in Montreal, you're interested in storytelling, look her up at NishaColeman.com. Here she is now with a story we call Ace. So, uh, when I was in my early 20s, I lived in Paris. I had a boyfriend there, his name was Frédéric, and I called him Fred for short. And we lived together in the center of the city, not far from Notre Dame, only about a five minute walk from Notre Dame. And Fred uh, was Parisian, which meant that he was, you know, a little different. Um, He wore scarves even in the summer. He took effervescent vitamins and he drank wine that to me was just red, but to him was steeped in nuances depending on the date and the region and the grapes. Uh, Fred and I, we had a great life together. On weekends, we'd go to museums or we'd take our books and go read in the park. The only thing that was really missing in my life at this time was friends. I had a good relationship, but I had been living in Paris for two years and I still hadn't made any friends. 
And that's because Parisian women are difficult. <laughs> they're very tricky to approach. Um, they're confident, they're very aloof, they're sexy without even trying. I always felt like a grubby teenager next to them. And the only time I was ever next to them would be like in the metro or the bus or something. So I needed friends, but I didn't know how to go about making them. And then I came across this ad for a magazine. And they're seeking foreign women to get together to talk about all things French. And I thought, this is perfect. I mean, what better opportunity to meet new friends? They wouldn't be Parisian friends, but that's, that's okay. We could bond over our non-Parisianness. would be perfect. And so I signed up. And the magazine wrote back right away. They'd be happy to have me, and they gave me a time and a place for the interview, which would happen in a week's time. So in a week, I show up for this interview. And it's in a restaurant near the Champs-Élysées, which is kind of a chic place in town, right? And I was expecting kind of fancy, but when I got in, I see extravagance. Like, this place is wild. I've never seen anything like it. There's shimmering lights along the side and flickering candles on the front desk. And I walk over to this veranda that gives out onto this gymnasium-sized dining area. And in the distance, I see this raised area, like a stage, and there's these gleaming white couches and some women on there. So I go down and I follow instructions. I go and sit on the couch with the other women the other women all look like supermodels. There's a tall Russian with an icy stare and a cheetah print top. There's this little um, brittle Mexican princess. She's wearing like this black little dress. Uh, there's a girl from Gabon who's wearing these tall red boots and she says that her name is Romance. <laughs> I'm not buying that. And then there's this girl from Cameroon, and she has these perfect little dreads and rock-solid confidence. And then there's me, representing Canada, <laughs> with a toothpaste stain on my shirt that's now too late to lick off. And uh, I didn't think that um, physical appearance would be so important, but they're setting up movie cameras, and I'm starting to get really nervous that maybe I've signed up to be on some kind of a live talk show and uh, the journalist approaches and he tells us the cameras they're just uh, for their website and that the interview is for a magazine called FHM. Does anyone know this magazine? It's a men's magazine and he hands us a previous copy and I look through the last issue and it looks like kind of a trashy maxim. And I flip to the last interview that this guy's done, and it's with middle-aged women. And it includes questions such as, with age, do men last longer before ejaculating? <laughs> and is a penis at age 40 more beautiful than a penis at age 18? <laughs> and I'm starting to get really nervous. And I asked the journalist, are you gonna be asking these kinds of questions? The journalist, his eyes are gleaming with joy, and he says, oh, we'll be talking about everything. <laughs> and he tells us that the name of the article is the myth of the French lover. So we're not gonna be talking about effervescent vitamins or scarves or red wine. 
We're going to be talking about sex. But here's the thing. What these people don't know and what most people don't know is that I don't even like sex at all. I don't think about it. I never want it. In fact, I don't even really understand it. Asexual is a term that I will identify with later, but right now all I know is that it's just not my thing. It makes being in a relationship very difficult, and it's destroyed every relationship that I've ever been in. And when I met Fred, I was so determined to not let this happen that I pretended. I pretended to like it and to want it, but I didn't do a very good job. And you might not believe this, but apparently it is not very satisfying to make love to somebody who doesn't want to. <laughs> so it was causing problems, and then I discovered the art of blowjobs. This was a revelation, because I could approach it from sort of a non-sexual standpoint, kind of a mind challenge, like a cause and effect kind of a thing. I do this, and then it does that, okay? So we would exchange shoulder massages for blowjobs. And this is kind of a reasonable thing to do when you think about it. I have tension in my shoulders, he has tension in his loins. It makes perfect sense. I don't know how long this is going to be satisfactory, but for now, it seems to be working. It's just that the world of sex is completely foreign to me, and not only that, I don't like talking about it. Because I don't want to have to explain what I am not. I mean, how do you explain the absence of something? Who could even understand that? Isn't that like saying, I don't really care for food? So in a world that is completely saturated with sex, that seems to revolve around sex, this has been my biggest secret and my biggest shame. And the journalist says, okay, let's get started. And I know that things are going to get difficult. So first he tells us to simply write down our breast size on a piece of paper because as a thank you, the magazine is going to send us lingerie. Already I'm in trouble because I don't really like bras either and I wear like sports bras and yoga tops. I don't know my size, let alone my European size. And the girls are all quietly noting their sizes and I say to the journalist, I'm sorry, I don't know my size. And the journalist tells me to stand up. And I do, and I feel my face starting to burn as he examines my chest and proclaims 85B, which is European for 38A, but neither of those make any sense. So I just sit down horrified and try to collect myself for the first question, which is, how are the French at flirting compared to the men in your respective countries? Okay, I'm re representing Canada here. But this question I think I can handle. And we go around in a circle and when it's my turn, I, I say, well, the French, they're a lot more bold than their Canadian counterparts. And often on the street, I'm approached by strangers and, and they always say the same boring pickup line, voulez-vous prendre un café, mademoiselle? And I imitate them and the girls are laughing and the journalist is, is writing furiously in his notebook. And for a second, I think, this could be fun. 
And the next questions are easy too. Are the French good at cooking? No. <laughs> are they muscular? No. Are they good dressers? No. And then he asks, are the French good in bed? And I feel my body stiffen. And the Cameroonian girl, she sets things off by saying that the French are too quick with the preliminary stuff. And the other girls chime in in agreement, and I'm not hoping we can just move along, but the journalist says, oh, Nisha, you agree. Um, the French, they're too quick. Is this uh, before or during? And there's a terrible silence. The cameras point towards me. And my mouth goes dry, my mind goes blank, and I don't know what to say, so I just say, both. <laughs> and the journalist takes a long swig of Heineken and says, Wow. <laughs> Next question. What position do the French prefer? The girls all yell in unison, on all fours. And the journalist writes a unanimous, on all fours. I nod along. The next question is actually directed at me. Nisha, tell us. Do Canadian men engage in cunnilingus more than the French? And I hesitate. And the only thing that I can think of to do in this moment is to spontaneously combust. <laughs> I've read about this phenomenon in a Reader's Digest and now would be a perfect opportunity. <laughs> because I don't know what cunnilingus means. I just know that I should know and everyone's waiting for me to answer. So I finally just say, I'm sorry, I don't know what you mean. And the journalist's eyes widen in shock and the girls exchange glances and snickers and they're obviously bonding. <laughs> and the journalist patiently explains the sexual act, but since it's clear that I won't be able to answer that question, he moves on to the next question. Do the French have big penises? All the girls scream, no. And he writes a big, no. I slink farther down into the couch. The questions are getting more and more intimate and the girls are absolutely loving it. What is the craziest thing you've ever done with a French guy? And the girls share their sex in a back seat and sex in an alley and triple orgasm stories. The journalist says, Nisha, more out of obligation now. And I, I try to think of the craziest thing I've ever done, which is being on top. <laughs> and I know enough at least to know that that's not considered crazy. So I just say, I, I don't, haven't done anything like that before. Then he asks, do you consider yourself a sex fantasy? And the girl from Gabon says, absolument. And the girl from Cameroon says, yes. And the Mexican giggles and says, I guess so. And the Russian nods solemnly. And I say, no. I leave the interview deflated. Not only did I not meet any new friends, but I'm now very aware of another thing missing in my life, sex. And when I get home, Fred asks how it was. 
I look at him and I feel awful. I am such a bad girlfriend. I am a bad lover. And I tell him about the magazine, and I tell him about the participants, I tell him about the cheetah print top that the Russian was wearing and the tall red boots, and I say, do you wish that I was like them? Like a, a sex fantasy? And he looks at me for a minute and then he pulls me into his arms and he hugs me really hard and he says, I love you the way you are. And then we go out for a walk and we go over the bridge and along a pedestrian street and to our favorite bar for a glass of red wine that my boyfriend would call a 2006 Beaujolais. And I tell him more about what happened, about how I said that the French were bad in bed before and during, that they have small penises and they're terrible at flirting and cooking. And he says he hopes that no one he knows finds that magazine in some dentist waiting office someday. <laughs> and we laugh really hard and I start to feel a bit better because I'm in love with him and he's in love with me and we have a great life together. And about a month later, I get that bra in the mail and I try it on, but it's way too small and I never wear it, not even once. Thank you so much. I was smoking weed on the couch one night with my, my boy wife when it got real. I asked her, do you ever want to have sex with me again? And she didn't really hesitate that long and she said, not really. I'm not sure if I like Mike Cox anymore. And usually I like, I like how direct she is, but at this point I thought maybe it would have been nice if she fought for it a little bit. So, you know, my chin lowers and my big broad chest of a family man kind of collapses and I let out this long sigh. And I say, well, you mind if I cruise around some parties and try to find a girl I can see once a week? Intimacy is kind of important to me. She says, okay, as long as I get to meet her. 
So I go online, you know, and I like sign up for Sacred Tantra Club and, you know, Six Positive and the Tantra, whatever. And uh, I started getting emails and they're like, oh my God, parties. And so I see the erotic ball pops up and I'm like, that's interesting. I'm thinking like a Mardi Gras or something like that, but it, there's a questionnaire. So I fill out the questionnaire, something about, I don't know, my erotic awakening, and I hit send and I forget about it. A couple weeks goes by. And I get a response. I'm like accepted to this party. Awesome. Gives me the address. So, you know, the night of the show, I, I root around. I find my leathers from high school and I put on my leather jacket, my leather pants and my T-shirt and I spike my hair and I go out the front door. And I drive up to this place and it's like this big Grange Hall in North Portland. It's just got an address and there's no sign. There's no balloons. But there's this long line, like sneaking up the alley back behind this place. So I finally get in, and I look at, and it's just like this huge dance floor, and it's like rocking DJ and all these people in their costumes and their slinky little thing. And I don't even think I saw a bra in the whole place. And I look over in the corner, and there's like the stripper pole. Of course, this is Portland. And then there's this enclosed area, like about the size of six phone booths, with these oval slots with fabric and a little slot. I later find out it's called the feel-out booth. You know, like. People go inside and you can feel my... Anyways, so I go downstairs and it's covered with futons and there's three people having live sex in front of everybody. And I realize this is not a Mardi Gras party. This is a private curated gig. So with a big grin, I kind of like, you know, I kind of like this vibe. It reminds me of being in my punk rock band and I'm like playing bass guitar and looking out of the mosh pit with people stage diving and all this action going on. And I think about the DJs and the after-hours clubs and the pimps and the hookers and all this stuff packed into these underground basements. And I realized, God, have I been sleeping in this 20-year marriage. So I go back upstairs, and I look out over the dance floor, and there's this belly dancer girl just, you know, with her little hip scarf and little bustier thing. And just, oh, my God. And I look over to this side, and there's, like, this lederhosen-clad woman with these heaving, like ice cream scoop boobs just writhing to the music and I'm like I'm gonna call her Helga anyways so <laughs> so I dance over closer to her and I realize her eyes are closed and I like look down at that vertigo cleavage and I almost lose my fucking balance and I wander around behind her and I look at this junk in the trunk Robert Crumb big fat ass clad in these like leather shorts and these telephone pole legs and the white stockings and the clogs and I look back up and there's that little triangle of leather and where you want to stick your finger up there and just see if she's got any underwear on and then oh my god so the the blonde ponytail sticking out from the back I want to just run at her from behind and grab hold and just push her off a cliff and jump on like a dragon in the avatar movie and just ride her down into the valley and up into the heavens god what a woman but I couldn't get her attention, so I'm like... <laughs> so I go over and play in the stripper pole, and then I go into the feel-out booth, and I like pull my pants down and like let people feel my ass and like spank me and stuff. And so I finally find somebody to dance with. So this woman dances with me for a little while, and we're on the dance floor, and she finally leans and says, You want to go downstairs and watch people fuck? I'm like, Yeah! So we go downstairs, and we're like holding hands and leaning against a wall, and after the novelty wore up, it's actually kind of sweet. You know, you're just kind of looking at like, 
you know, like listening to like this harmony of this women in their bliss just kind of create this siren song of like serenity and it's like, God, this is beautiful. So she eventually said, you know, I got to get going. So I stood up and gave her a hug and I kind of sat back down and like steeped in that for a minute. And I eventually looked around and there's like, everybody's clearing out. So I go back upstairs and the dance floor is empty except for two people. And I'm like looking and like, oh my God, one of them's Helga. And some guy. So I stand there and check in with my instigator, you know, like, okay, what are my odds? And I say, fuck it. So I just go walking up to her and I say to the dude, excuse me. And I look at her and I say, do you want to feel me out in the feel out booth? (laughs) And she looks at him like, do you know this guy? And she says to me, okay. (laughs) I'm like, awesome. So I turn around, I get about halfway there, and I turn back around, and she's still talking to the guy, and I say, hey! <laughs> so she looks at me, and she points at me, and she says, get in there, take your clothes off, and I'll be there in a second. <laughs> awesome. So I snake my way into the opening of the feel-out booth, and in the feel-out booth is the belly dancer making out with two other chicks. And one of them's got this like purple hair sticking out like this, and the other one's this tall Grace Jones, like gorgeous, like black, shiny skin woman. And I'm like, whatever, you know. So I take my clothes off. <laughs> and I'm standing there waiting for Helga's arm to come through the slot, you know. So, so her arm comes through the slot, and I'm like, oh. And she's touching me. And then her hand like runs up one side of my body. <sighs> She like wraps her hands and like runs her fingers down the middle of my spine, like, and then one hand disappears and it comes back in a lower slot and it's like running up the inside of my leg. And then she starts drifting past my cock and then she like lifts my cock with this butterfly wing little touching thing. And oh my God, I'm like, And my cock gets so hard, I think I'm going to burst a blood vessel. (laughs) She's like doing this little extruded thing that is just so exquisite. And I lean into one of the openings. I just come in here. And she's like, I can't. Just come in here. I don't know if I can or not. Well, then just come over by the door. It's okay. So I turn to go over by the door, and I'm ambushed by this belly dancer. He's like, mouth is on me, and his tongue is down my throat. And I realize the the razor stubble and I'd get a little this is a dude <laughs> and so I'd, I got shit to do just a second you know so, so so Helga appears at the door and I've got her I've mocked eyes with her so okay and I'm looking at Helga with like for any sign of like resistance so I stick two of my fingers down between her breast in the front of that leather bustier I'm just running them back and forth and looking right at her. And she's like arching her back into me. And it's like, oh, God, yeah. So I like pull that fucking thing down. And like the most beautiful breast that I've ever seen in my entire life. And just as I'm about to move towards that thing, there's a mouth on my cock. And I look down. And it's like, shit. <laughs> and I'm like, how did there get to be a cock- mouth on my cock? And is that okay with me? So... I think to myself, well, first of all, I've never had a man's mouth on my cock before. 
and let me roll this big back. So, I, okay, I looked at him across the dance floor for a while, and maybe he saw me staring at me. And, well, there was that time when I danced past him, and I go, hey, hi. <laughs> you know, and then, of course, I didn't tell him to fuck off when he kissed me, so I guess this is okay. So he grabs my cock and starts wringing it like a dish rag, and Helga disappears somewhere, and I am like, oh my god, this is not going to be this girly little blowjob. This is going to be a man's cock sucking. <laughs> so I, my knees go, and I'm like on my back on the floor, and he starts pulling on my cock like he's ripping it out of the ground by the roots. And then... It changes this, like, the rattle can wrist action, and I'm like, oh, my God, I'm up on this plateau of, like, I can't believe this. this is amazing. <laughs> but what's so weird is I started thinking about the last time I wanted to have sex with my wife. And, you know, it, it was always kind of sad because she would hide from me. Like, where are you? I can't feel you. You know, like... I restored this house for us. You know, I'm playing it by the book. I mean, why do you leave me up here trying to climb through all this barbed wire to try to find you? I look at this belly dancer, you know, his hip scarf and his hair and his dancing and his fucking fully expressed erotic presence right in front of me, modeling for me, like, what does a big sexy encounter feel like? And his skull descends down. And my hard cock extrudes itself deep down his throat. And the sound of like a lion trying to clear a hairball just comes out of his mouth. <laughs> All the way down till his teeth are cutting into my pelvis and he just like lingers there and I'm like, oh my God, this thing is amazing. And then he pulls his mouth up and as my cock clears his mouth, Strings of mucus hang down from his upper lip, and he looks at me, and I trusted him. And he takes one hand out, and he puts it on my shoulder, and he drives me down and pins me down against the ground. And I just, like, let go. I don't care. I let go of it all, all the way down my spine. And he takes his other hand and he grabs that mucus-covered cock and he starts pounding me. <clears throat> like relentless, like a big man with a, driving in a railroad spike with a sledgehammer. He's just like pounding on me. He's pounding on me and I just start trying to slow it down with my breathing. And as I'm slowing it down with my breathing, the sound of my voice starts dropping in my throat. And it's just like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. And as he continues, to, the, the, the involuntary contractions start to show up in the front of my, all the way down the front of my body. And I start to tense up. And I start to just resist the feeling. Because if I come now, I'm, by God, I'm going to tear a groin muscle. <laughs> So it finally just takes over me, and I just jackknife forward, and I feel like there's a wrestler on me trying to pin me down for the final count, and I let go of this massive load of cum which lofts through the air over my chest and lands in my left eye. <laughs> and I am blinded while he gives me four more big 
pumps on my cock, like, oh my fucking God! And he's gone. So I, I fumble around for a t-shirt, and I like wipe my face off and my bare chest, and I look around, and everybody's gone. And it's quiet. And this peace comes over me, and there's no shame. I actually feel transformed. And I think about all of the energy that I've put into calling women out of their shadow to like meet me in the middle at some place of intimacy so I could feel myself and so I could validate my existence only to realize that I have never surrendered to somebody else's erotic expression. I have never allowed somebody to call me out of the shadows. I have never had the courage to reflect back to somebody the beauty of their erotic presentation to me. And to wrap that up in my own creative expression and give it back to them so they know that I felt every second of it. So they can feel themselves and they could validate their existence. So as a 60-year-old man, I stand here, and I look back that eight years to that erotic encounter, and I know it was right then that I decided that no matter where I am on my journey to integrate my determined creative engineer with my wild erotic expression, that I am good enough for who I am, and the world is a better place if I stop fighting for my freedom and live as a man who is already free.
that is all for this week's episode, folks. This is Gary Clark Jr. behind me now. Remember, 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 remember to follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Risk Show. On Twitter, I'm at the Kevin Allison, and spread the word. Give us a review on iTunes. Those reviews really make a difference as far as bringing eyes to the podcast. Teach your friends and family how to access the show. A lot of people still don't know <laughs> how to get these podcast things. And get involved. Share your stories. You know what we're looking for right now? Halloween stories. Scary stories. Ghost stories. Stories about encounters with maniacs or crazy, bad, hallucinatory trips on drugs. or Whatever it might be. Send us your scary stories at risk-show.com slash submissions. Now, here is where we are coming next. On September 22nd, we are coming for the first time ever to Nashville, Tennessee. Everyone in Nashville, tell your friends to come on out on September 22nd. These stories are jaw-dropping. These are amazing stories that are going to be shared that night in Nashville, so come on out. On September 28th, we're back at the Bell House in Brooklyn again. That's going to be an amazing show, Brooklyn. Come on out on September 28th. On September 30th, for the first time ever, we're in Richmond, Virginia. September 30th, we're in Richmond. Guys, spread the word if you live in Richmond. We might still have a little bit of time for people to pitch us their stories from Richmond. If you want to reach out at risk-show.com slash submissions. The theme that night is juicy. On November 11th, we're in New Orleans. New Orleans for the first time ever. Again, the theme is legends. Pitch us, guys. Pitch us for our November 11th show in New Orleans. On November 12th, the very next day, we're in Baltimore, Maryland for the first time ever. The theme is Wounded. Pitch us, guys. That's going to be a hell of a show, Baltimore. On November 18th, we're in Chicago, Illinois again. November 18th, Chicago. We're a part of the Chicago Podcast Festival. The theme is Frenzy. We are taking pitches for that. And if you're worried, oh my God, I don't know how to formulate a pitch. Well, there's a video of me explaining how to do it on the submissions page at risk-show.com. And if you're still convinced, oh, I don't know how to make a story itself, we're at thestorystudio.org. I can train you over Skype, a one-on-one -on -one session, or you can get our video course, Intro to Storytelling, there. If you have a business staff that you'd like to take a storytelling workshop with, contact us at thestorystudio.org. We teach all kinds of workshops there, in New York, in Minneapolis, and in Los Angeles on a regular basis. You can always find us at thestorystudio.org. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk.
If his grace is not satisfied with me, he can dismiss me. It's obvious I don't satisfy. Will you shut the fuck up?